Hey, good morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and find Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. It's good to be with you again this week. Uh, We took a week off uh, over the last couple of days. My wife and I went on vacation, which meant we stayed at home for a week because you can't go really anywhere these days. Uh, But we are glad to be back. I'm glad to be uh, before you again, teaching God's Word and studying the Bible with you. Uh, So hopefully you had a chance to catch up if you've missed the last uh, if you've missed a couple of Sundays or missed a couple of the messages for our series that we're going through here in the book of Galatians. But if you uh, haven't been able to catch up, just, just to catch you up, over the last couple of weeks, we've been seeing Paul give an argument, a defense for his authority as an apostle to the churches in Galatia because there were some false teachers coming in and they were telling the churches in Galatia that in order to be a real Christian, in order to be true followers of the God of Scripture, uh, in order to be a true follower of Yahweh, uh, you had to be a follower of the law. You had to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. And that was uh, the opposite of what Paul was teaching, that, that your salvation, your righteousness before God is, is given to you by grace as a gift. It's not a result of works. And so uh, for the first few chapters, Paul was uh, proving his authority and proving the truthfulness of his message. And then in, chapters th- in chapter 3, we, we got these kind of theological arguments that Paul gave us, that, uh, that the churches in Galatia had received the Spirit. And so, of course, they were actual followers of Jesus. Of course, they were actual Christians. We learned that Jesus really did die on the cross for our sins. He was our substitute, and he redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So that when we become Christians, we actually die with Christ and rise with him to new life. Two weeks ago, uh, we took a look at three of the major biblical covenants and saw how they reveal the gospel by being put together rightly. So we saw the covenant with Abraham that a promised one would come who would bring blessing and honor and righteousness to God's people. We saw that the the law of Moses was kind of like a guardian or or a tutor, a pedagogue, if you will, that would preserve the people of God until the proper time for the new covenant or the covenant with Christ the one that we get to enjoy now where we are sons and daughters of God. So we saw that Abraham's offspring, way back in his covenant, is none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And through Christ, we now get to become sons and daughters of Abraham, which means we get to become a part of the family of faith. And Paul's going to continue that train of thought today. As we go into chapter 4 of Galatians, we'll see his train of thought continue as he compares the benefits of freedom and life in Christ with bondage and slavery under law and sin. Paul wants to remind the Galatian churches and us as well that we are sons of God in Christ. And if we're sons, then we're heirs. We will receive an inheritance. We talked before about how we all want to be sons in this case because they were the ones who received the inheritance. They were the ones in those days who kept the family name. We want to be Sons, so for you girls, yes, in a very real sense, you are a daughter of God. But in this kind of legal sense, it's good for all of us to be considered sons. So uh, we, we know that we're going to be sons. We're going to be partakers of the inheritance. But next, Paul's going to challenge the believers in Galatia to imitate him and return to their former life of spirit-filled faith rather than living through their works in order to try to earn their righteousness. I think we all need to be reminded of that 
as well. So I think this morning will be helpful for all of us. Hopefully you found Galatians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 1 and read through verse 7. Paul writes, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray before we go any further. Oh God in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather together, open up your word, and behold your truth. We pray that as we continue to hear these truths of Paul in Galatians talking about our identity as sons of God and our identity as in Christ and no longer under the law, God, I pray that you would help us to maybe see for the first time in a long time how our behaviors and our motivations sometimes become out of sync with the truth of the gospel. So just like these Galatian churches, we need to be reminded, Lord, we need to be reminded and have our sins and faults revealed so that we might run all the more quickly back to your grace. Lord, I pray that you would help us to to live spirit-filled lives standing on the truth of the gospel that we have been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, that he really did take away our sins. He really did redeem us. And therefore, we are adopted into your family. Therefore, we've been given your Holy Spirit. So God, help us to understand this text and be changed by it for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Paul was giving us an explanation uh, two weeks ago about our state under the law. Because of the law of Moses, all have sinned, right? We know this from other texts in Scripture, right? Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know that we are sinners. But we're like children under a tutor, under a guardian. That's kind of the same way that Paul is looking at these things. So if you're taking notes, the first thing that we want to remember, we want to remember three things and be challenged to do three things this morning. And the first thing is this. Paul wants us to not forget your sonship. He's saying to you and me, do not forget your sonship. Do not forget who you are as a son of God. Paul's repeating this idea that he did two weeks ago with a a bit of a twist. So so last week he was talking about we were guardians under the law. And now he highlights the fact that we're heirs. So it's not just that we're sons, not just that we're children, but we're heirs. Before heirs come of age, though, they have no say in their inheritance. So maybe uh, your uh, parents are business owners, or maybe you have a grandparent who's a, a very wealthy person, and you have an inheritance. You have something that's promised to you at the death of that family member or when you come become a certain age. But, but here's the deal. You didn't have a choice in when you would receive the inheritance. It's not yours yet to decide what to do with. No, instead, the, the owner, the conservator of that inheritance, he gets to decide or she gets to decide when and where their inheritance uh, goes. And it's the same with this, uh, this text here with us this morning. 
So we are heirs who have no say in our inheritance. And because we have no say, we're in many ways just like slaves or servants. We, we, we are existing among the family, but we are not free. We're, we're bound. We, we don't have the capacity. We don't have the ability to, to, to live our lives freely because we are enslaved. Look again at verse 3. He says, In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. So Paul says that when we were children, that is when we were under the law, before we became Christians, before we had faith, when we were trying to work out our own salvation with our works, we were actually living as slaves. We were enslaved to what he calls the elementary principles of this world. Now, what does that mean, right? Elementary principles of this world. It's kind of a weird phrase. And and some scholars, they debate what this could mean. There's really two um, major ideas, and I think the answer could be both, but I'll I'll give you both of them. First, we can say on the one hand that the law of God, the, the law of our Lord is the elementary or the foundational principle of the world. So, so think about it like this. A society of people would not last long without following the moral principles that God puts on their hearts. So things like stealing or murder or, or bearing false witness, th- those, those kinds of things, we would have to not do them. We would actually have to obey those kinds of laws in order for our society to continue. So in, in a very real way, we are under those elementary principles of the world, the law of God. It's how creation continues. But the world is enslaved to that law in the sense that they know it exists. They know We, we all know it, it's wrong to steal or it's wrong to murder. So we're enslaved because we know the law exists. We know these principles exist, but we cannot measure up. We cannot obey the law that has been written on our hearts. So that's one way we could look at elementary principles of the world. This The law of God written on our hearts that's Kind of, uh, it's kind of known throughout all creation. Or we could see the, the phrase elementary principles of the world as the supernatural and, and often demonic influence that has empowered the world's sinful and broken systems. So when we think about uh, false gods of the world and, and the, the demonic influence behind them, so the things that we idolize or the things that we run after to sin, whether it's safety or pleasure or comfort or, or false religions, whatever it is, this could be the elementary principles of the world. Back in those days, there were many people who were pagans. They would worship uh, spirits and gods who would uh, kind of uh, personalize or, or uh, characterize the elements of the world. So literally like fire and water and, and wind and the earth, these, these foundational, these elementary, princi- elementary principles Uh, would be personified by false gods. So in either way, uh, if we're we're putting our hope in something like that, like a false goddess, if we're we're idolizing something like that, we're also enslaved. Why? Because those false gods can't give us salvation. Those false gods can't really bring us out of our own sin. We're, We're hopeless either way. So whether it's the law of God in Paul's mind or the false gods of the world, we are hopeless because we cannot achieve our salvation. But then Jesus comes. So this is the good news of the gospel. Look at verse 4. He says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, 
This is the good news of the gospel. God the Son came from heaven to earth. He put on flesh at the proper time, in the fullness of time, Paul says. So so what that means for you and me is that everything that happens in light of redemption, everything that happens for the restoration of all creation, that the Son of God has been sent from heaven to earth, this all happened according to the sovereign plan of God. It wasn't a a knee-jerk response to a problem that was unforeseen. No, this was the decree of God from before creation that, that the Son would come at the proper time, in the fullness of time, to redeem a people for Himself. So this is all part of God's sovereign plan. And, and the one who came, the Son of God, came and He was born of woman, Paul says. He was incarnated. He, he took on flesh. So so what you and I need to be reminded of is that the Son of God, who we know as Jesus Christ, is both fully God, He is God the Son, and He is fully man. He was born of a woman. He he was a baby, just like you and me. He grew up just like you and me. He is fully human, and, and He is just like us in His humanity. Next, this verse tells us that He was born under the law. So Jesus, like us, was aware of the demands that the law of God had placed on his heart. But unlike us, he always obeyed. He was not born with sin like you and me. He was miraculously incarnated, born of a virgin, and he did not have the inherited sin guilt that you and I have. He was able to obey the law perfectly. But why did he come? Why why did the the Son of God, come at the proper time to be born of a woman and be born under the law. Well, it tells us in verse 5, He came to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So there's two huge things happening here. First, Jesus came to redeem those who were under the law. Jesus came to redeem sinners like you and me. Jesus went to the cross. We've already learned about this in Galatians, but Paul wants to remind us again that Jesus was the one who took your place. He redeemed you from the curse of the law. He was your substitute. He paid your price. He bore God's wrath for you and redeemed you. But where is that redemption going? Where is He taking you from your sin into His family? He redeemed you in order to be adopted as a son. We were redeemed to receive adoption, to be brought near into the family of God. So now, because of Christ and His work in our lives, we are now sons of the living God. We're brought into His family. And God is now our Heavenly Father. And not only that, it gets better. So not only does God send His Son to redeem us, and not only does the Father adopt us into His family, but next we see that we receive the Spirit of God who dwells in our hearts. Look at verse 6. He says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit now indwells you and me. We've been redeemed by Christ, adopted by the Father, and now indwelled by the Spirit. This is the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit at work in your life and mine. And now as redeemed Spirit-indwelled sons and daughters of God, we can cry, Abba, Father. Now, we don't use the word Abba, right? But that, that word in those days was a term of endearment and intimacy between children and their 
fathers, to think like papa or daddy or something that you would say only to your own dad. For us, being able to call God Abba emphasizes our immediate access and our deep relationship that we now get to enjoy with God. So students, if you feel like God is far away from you, this text is telling us that he's very, very near. That he's close to you even now. So so students, you are no longer a slave. If you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, you're no longer enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. You're no longer under the curse of the law. You have been freed by Jesus Christ and you're now a son. And verse 7 says, and if you are a son, then you are an heir through God. The gospel frees us up from our bondage to the principles of this world. And as we'll see in a moment, the Galatian Christians needed to be reminded of this wonderful truth. It's why he's telling them. In the next few verses, we'll see why he's telling them. But but for now, we need to be reminded that we are the sons and daughters of God. The fact is, our world is off kilter right now. More than usual, right? I mean, the world is always kind of crazy. And we know that we live in a broken world world, a broken community, a broken society, but, but more than usual right now, it seems that, that our brokenness has kind of uh, come up to the surface for all of us to see. Things are clearly not as they should be, but these verses remind you and me of powerfully good news, that the Son of God has redeemed us. He's taken your guilt. He's taken your shame. He's taken your debt that you owed because of your sin, and he's paid the debt. The Father has chosen you. He's chosen you and adopted you into His family as His child. The Spirit of God now dwells within you and is always with you. Wherever you go, you are never alone. So don't forget. I mean, hear me and hear Paul say this through this text. Don't forget that you've been set free. Don't forget that you are a child of God. Don't forget your sonship, that you are now an heir of God, the Creator. He sees you right now. If you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, He sees you right now as His beautiful child. And He is calling you to come near. Like any good father would, He he wants to enjoy the relationship, the communion that He can have with you. So don't forget your sonship. Don't forget who you are in Christ. Don't forget that you've been adopted into this family. Well, Paul continues. That's, he, he reminds the Galatian church who they are, and, and we're going to get to why he's reminding them. So look at verse 8. He says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. So if Paul's first truth, first command, first charge for us is to not forget our sonship, here's Paul's second command and it's a warning. He says, do not fall for imposters. Do not fall for imposters. The Galatian Christians needed to be reminded of their sonship because they had traded it in. 
They had traded in their identity in Christ, their identity as a child of God for something that was worthless, for something that was weak. And like the Galatians, we need to hear Paul's warning. Do not fall for the imposters. He says, look, before you knew the true God, remember, you were enslaved to sin. You were enslaved to the things of this world that, that, that might seem powerful, but they're not gods. They're not actually divine. They're not actually powerful like our God is. And that's true for all of us. I mean, before you became a Christian, you were enslaved to your sin. You were enslaved to something because your heart is broken. And it's, it's like, a, like an uncalibrated compass. You think you're going north, but you're actually going way off course. And all of us have that story. Before we know God, we are running in the wrong direction. That no one is seeking righteousness. That no one is good. That's what Paul says in Romans 3. We were all born with sinful hearts. Our bodies and our souls were broken and distorted by sin. And so the way we think and the way we act and the way we feel, we're all off. And we could not save ourselves. right? We couldn't follow false gods well enough, or we can't follow the false gods toward salvation because that's not where they're headed. Instead, we just tried to find something to worship. So we volunteered for slavery to these false gods. That's what Paul's saying here in verse 8. That, that you and I, as sinners, volunteer for slavery. And we tried to find the, the, the false god who seemed the strongest, who seemed the, to give us the best kinds of promises. And, and these gods, these, these false idols in our life, they seem so powerful. They seem so good. But in the end, we know that they, they will never deliver on their promises. So, so what was that for you? I mean, think about in your own life, uh, maybe the, the way that your heart is bent away from God, because all of us have this. All of us have this. So we are new creations in Christ, right? We, we no longer live in the flesh, right? We live in the Spirit. We have been given the Spirit. But that doesn't mean that the flesh or this, the sinful temptation, the sinful tendencies of our lives are just done away with forever. We may not be in the flesh, but the flesh is in us. So, so think about in your own heart and mind, what are the ways in which I try to go off course? Like what are the... What are the false gods or what are the idols in my own heart that I, I tend to run toward? I mean, maybe it was another religion. And, and, and before you go off and say, well, I don't have that problem. I don't, I don't run after Buddha or uh, Krishna or Gandhi or, or, or any of those things. Before you say that that's not your problem, maybe it's atheism. Like maybe you live your life in a way that functionally it really wouldn't matter if God is real or not. And maybe the conversations that you have or the things that you read or the, the, the practices that you have, they're really not informed by your belief in God. They're really not informed by your belief specifically in the Christian God. That, that functionally, practically, you may live as an atheist. So, so maybe that's the, the bent of your heart, that you, you try to live a life or you, you find yourself living a life that's, that's godless. Maybe it's that kind of false religion. Or maybe it's sports. Or some kind of activity that you either perform or you, uh, you watch. So it could be video games. It could be any kind of entertainment that you either consume or you try to perform and practice. You're putting your identity in that. You're putting your hope in, in those things. Maybe it's your own security. You want to feel safe. 
Maybe it's your own pleasure. You want to feel good. And so you'll run after those things that give you the most pleasure, that, that, that give you the most security. Here's another example that I think might be emphasized in our current situation of being on lockdown and, and not being able to be around other people. And Maybe the way that your heart is bent, it's bent towards control. The fact is we all want to be sovereign over our own lives. And so we try to find things in our lives that we can control. We, we try to become the master of our own lives in certain ways. And ultimately, that's going to lead to obsession. That's going to lead to us living our lives in a way that we have to have that control because we think that we're our gods. We think that we're our own God. So it may be control over how people see you. That You want to make sure that you're the one curating your own story or curating your own kind of narrative, your own kind of personal brand, right? I mean, we all know people who have social media profiles. If I just look at some of y'all's Instagrams, right? That, that what I see on that page is not who you are. It's who you want people to think you are. So maybe you try to have control and you obsess over how people see you. Or maybe you try to obsess and control how you see yourself. So it leads you to do things that may be harmful or, or not helpful at least because you're trying to look a certain way or be a certain way. So you control how you see yourself. Or maybe it's you try to have control over what you do and so you are so disciplined. You don't give yourself any kind of break. You don't give yourself any kind of leniency or any kind of rest because you have to keep going. You have to be this kind of person. You have to be successful. You have to be an achiever. You have to be this. We all crave control in one way or another. Because our sinful hearts, ultimately, they'll, they'll run after other gods, but ultimately, your sinful heart, my sinful heart, wants to be its own God. But now, Paul says, we, we know God. Now we've been, been given eyes to see and we know the true God. We know the one who really is in control. We know the one who really will keep us safe, who really will give us pleasures forevermore, who really, who really is in control of all things. We know him. Or more correctly in verse 9, as Paul says, he knows us. It's one thing for us to know who God is. It's another one, it's another thing entirely for God to be able to know you, to have a relationship with you. We have been set free from those chains of enslavement. We've been set free from the false idols that we once ran after, the control that we once desired in our own hearts. We don't have to live that way. We can now rest in God's sovereignty, in God's power, in God's control, and worship Him and follow His rule and His reign. And Paul says, church, my Galatian brothers and sisters, you know this. You, you have come to know God. And God knows you. So here's the, the stinging question. Look at verse 9 again. He says, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Paul asks, how is it that Christians who have been set free from their sin, who have been set free from their slavery, how is it that those who know the true God can now turn 
and run back towards the things that enslaved them before? How is it that the, that the ones who know God, who have, been, uh, who have been adopted into his family, who've received the Holy Spirit, how can they go back to things that are weak and worthless and worship those things? Students, Paul is not writing this letter to lost people. So when you read this, don't think, man, I, I know some people in my life that they, they really need to turn from where they're running after. Or I know there's some terrible people in the world that they need to read this, they need to hear this. They need to turn out. No, he's, he's not writing to lost people. Paul is writing this to Christians. He's writing this to people who have been saved by grace through faith. And it's a warning. It's a warning to you and me and to every Christian who reads this text because Paul is calling them out. He's saying you got to stop following these imposters. They're, they're not the real thing. You know the real thing. So don't run away from him. He, he continues, Paul calls them out for observing days and months and seasons and years. And, and you may not think that that's important, but what he's referring to is the, is the Jewish calendar. He's referring to the feasts and the festivals that happen at certain days and months and seasons and years. He's referring to the law. He's referring to the law of Moses. That's what he's calling out the church in Galatia for. But what might he call us out for? If Paul were to look at our lives or were to visit our church in, in maybe even ideal circumstances where we're all gathered together, what are some things that you might think he would say about us? What are the imposters that we allow in our lives that we run after, that we give worship to, that we give credence to, that we start to put our hope in? How have we let the patterns of our former slavery creep back up into our lives. Because, students, here's the truth. All of us do this. Right? You're not immune to running after false gods as a Christian. You're not immune to idolatry as a Christian. Your flesh is still here. It's still trying to pull you away from God. It's trying to pull you away from the things of God, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. These are enemies that we will have until Christ comes or we see him in heaven. So none of us are immune from this. All of us still wrestle and struggle with sin. So, so we're all on the same page here. But what is it? And do we realize that we all also wrestle and struggle with our worship? With our allegiance? That we're actually putting our faith not in God, but in other things? Paul wants to shock the Galatians and wake them up. It's almost like through the pages, he's trying to grab them by the collar and shake them awake and say, listen to what I'm saying. He says, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. I mean, can you imagine? Like, can you imagine our pastor or the one who led you to faith look at you and look at your life and say, I'm afraid that all of this was in vain. I'm afraid that all of this was worthless. I mean, what a stinging rebuke. What a, what a stab in the heart. This is what Paul says. I'm afraid I've labored over you in vain. Now, does this mean that they're losing their salvation? Does this mean that Paul thinks that they're going to actually lose their salvation? I don't think so. I mean, you read all the rest of Paul's writings, and it's, it's abundantly clear that once God has you in his hands, 
once he's adopted you into his family, there is nowhere else for you to go. You're his forever. But what it means for Paul to say that he might have labored over them in vain is that if these Galatian churches, if the people who make up these churches continue to place their hope in false gods and false gospels, then they will reveal that they never really believed the gospel in the first place. That they may have said something to to get something for themselves. They may have agreed to something because they thought it was helpful to them, but they really didn't believe in the God of the gospel. They didn't really believe that Jesus really was the Son of God. They didn't really believe in Him as the Messiah. No, they just wanted something. Because if their heart is running after all of these false gods instead of the one true God, then what it reveals is that their hearts were never changed. So this is a warning for the Galatian Christians to repent, to remember the true gospel, to come back to freedom, to come back to their sonship. And students, this is a warning for you and me. Do not place your hope in your works. Do not place your faith in the things of this world. Do not trust your own heart when it's leading you away from Christ, when it's leading you away from His Word. Don't try to live for control or pleasure or sports or video games or or anything in this world. Don't try to live for those things with your whole life and then say with your lips that you follow Jesus. That's what the Galatian Christians were doing. They were saying, oh yeah, we, we love Jesus. We love the Gospel. But we're going to put our hope in the law. We're going to put our hope in the, work, in the works that we do. We must all remember who we are in Christ. Put the imposters away and then run the race set before us by God. And that's where Paul is headed with the last section of our text this morning. So find uh, verse 12. We're going to read through verse 20. Paul writes, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling the truth? They make much of you but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Paul is upset. Because He's shown them who they are in Christ. He's shown them their sonship. And he's revealing to them that these imposters are leading them away from the faith, leading them away from true gospel living, true saved lives, true life in Christ. So so now that we've seen the sonship, we've seen who we are in Christ, and now that the imposters have been revealed, Paul is now giving this final warning. He says, do not fail to imitate me. Do not fail to imitate me or do not fail to imitate Paul. Now, what do I mean by that? Paul wants the Christians in Galatia to be like him. Look again at verse 12. 
brothers, I entreat you, or I, I beg you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. He's saying, look, follow me, imitate me. Now that seems a bit conceited, right? Paul's saying, hey, just do what I do because I've got it all figured out. That, that seems a little proud, a little arrogant, but, but it's not. It's not conceited. It's not proud. Think about it. If you're a mature believer, if you've been following Jesus for a long time, if you've saturated your mind with God's Word and you've memorized Scripture in your heart and you regularly share the Gospel with other people, if the fruit of the Spirit are cultivated in your life, then, then obviously younger believers, less mature believers, should be able to follow you on whatever path you're headed toward. Because it seems as though you're headed towards Christ. You're headed towards sanctification. You're headed towards godliness. So if we are mature believers, we should be able to say to, to less mature, younger believers, hey, I want you to grow in your faith. Come follow me. Come imitate me. Come do the things that I do. This is just discipleship. That we find someone who's maybe a little bit farther along the path than we are, maybe a little bit farther along that narrow road, and we start to follow them in their footsteps. We start to learn how they live their lives. That's what Paul wants these churches to do. He reminds the churches here in verses 12 through 15 that when they first received him, everything was great. They received him and the message of the gospel well. Apparently, when Paul came, it says here in the text, apparently when Paul came to Galatia the first time, he was suffering from some kind of sickness or some kind of ailment. He did not come to them with power. He even says, it was a trial for you to, to actually hear what I had to say. He could have been really, really sick. He could have been really, really injured. I mean, we, we don't know what exactly was going on. But we do know that when he came to the church, he came, when he came to the people in Galatia, he was weak. He was weak. He wasn't powerful. He wasn't strong. He wasn't smooth. He wasn't popular. He was weak and wounded. And this is just a side note for, for you and me, students. It's not the main point of this passage, but I think it's helpful for us to just spend just a second on this. You think about Paul going to Galatia, suffering from this bodily ailment, weak and wounded, a, a trial to even be heard, and churches were formed. So, so here's the point. You do not have to have it all together to be used by God in incredible ways. Like you don't have to have it all together. You don't have to be the popular one. You don't have to be the smartest person in the room. You don't have to be the most successful or the, most, the one with the most achievements or the one with the most awards. You can instead just be the faithful one. That's what Paul did. He was faithful. It was not strong. It was not popular. It was not smooth. It was not eloquent, but it was faithful. And God used Paul's faithfulness in the lives of all of these Galatians to bring them to faith, to start these churches. That's what Paul did, and God used it powerfully. And students, the same can be true with you. You don't have to have it all together to be used mightily by God. So remember that. When you're thinking about your own inadequacy or your own failures or your own lack of measuring up, remember that oftentimes God will use the weak. He will use the foolish. He will use the ones that the world overlooks in order to get glory for himself. That it, it, it's, it's almost as if Paul says in other places that when he is weak, then he is strong. That, that, that God's strength is actually 
displayed or made perfect in his own weakness. It's the same for us. All right, so back on to the text at hand. The Galatians received Paul as they would have received Jesus himself, Paul says. They were wonderful. So what happened? Right? And that's his point in verse 15. He says, uh, what then has become of your blessedness? You would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me if it were possible. Like you would have done whatever it took to serve me, to love me well, to care for me. Look at verse 16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They would have sacrificed for Paul when he first came. But now they see him as an enemy because of these false teachers. This is a question for you and me as well as we think about our own lives. Do we receive the truth? Like when we hear the truth, when someone speaks truth into our lives, do we receive it? Because here's the deal. Paul's message did not change. The gospel Paul preached remained the same. What changed? It was the churches in Galatia. Their receptivity to the truth changed. And and students, maybe for you, when you first became a Christian, you received the truth with joy. You wanted to know what's true and what's right and what's good and what's godly. But maybe over time, you've started to wander away from receiving the truth. Do we consider the truth an enemy? To those who hate the truth, the truth will sound like hate. And there are many people around us in our culture, in our community, who don't know the truth. They don't know God. And so they hate Him. And anything that sounds like the truth to them will sound like hate. Instead, those who do not receive the truth will start to try to find someone saying what they want to hear. What they want to be true, rather than what is true. This is what Paul is warning about in verse 17. The false teachers are saying what the Galatians want to hear. They're they're tickling their ears, as he says in other places. But what the false teachers are saying is not right. It's not true. He says they want to shut you out that you will make much of them. That's what he says in verse 17. In other words, those false teachers are saying that if the Gentiles really want to be followers of Jesus, they have to be circumcised. They have to follow the law. So here's what that looks like. You have a church of Gentile believers. The false teachers come in and say, hey, in order to be a real believer, you got to be circumcised and follow the law. You have to actually be a Jew before you can be Christian. So if they believe that, what does that mean? It means that this group of Gentile believers are no longer Gentile believers. They're just Gentiles. They have been shut out. They've been taken out of the church of God. And now they have to be circumcised and they have to follow the law in order to get back into the church. But here's the problem. The only way to get back into the church is through what? It's through faith. What does it mean to be a son of Abraham? What does it mean to be a part of his offspring? To believe in God, to have faith. So so they want to shut the Gentiles out, take them out of the church, and give them a pathway in that's impossible to accomplish. Because through the law, they will never become the children of God. Through the law, they will never become Christians. They will be doomed. They will be hopeless. They will try to find their salvation in their works. So he's saying, if you follow the law of Moses, if you think that's the way in, you'll never get in. And notice, the the problem is not passion. The problem is not 
zeal. He, Paul talks about this in verse 18. Or verse, yeah, verse 18. He said, it's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. So we should be passionate about the truth. We should be zealous for the gospel, but our passion has to be rightly aimed. So, And we know this, right? We know that just because you're passionate about something or because you're really convicted about something or really zealous about something doesn't mean that you're right. It doesn't mean that what you're saying is true. I mean, goodness gracious, watch the news and see any politician talk about anything right now. They may be really, really passionate or really, really zealous, but that doesn't mean that they're right. In the same way, when it comes to our doctrine, when it comes to our faith, we can be passionate and zealous, but it doesn't make us right. It's as if Paul is throwing his hands in the air at the end here. He's saying, I am in the pain of labor. I'm having birth pains over you. You're causing me grief. He wishes that he could be physically present. Because being face-to-face with a problem, being face-to-face with conflict is almost always more helpful. But he knows and he trusts that the Word of God and the Spirit that they received can awaken them to the truth once again. That Christ will be formed in them. They will grow into greater faithfulness, into greater holiness through this rebuke, through this problem. Students, maybe we need to be awakened once again. Maybe we need to hear this rebuke and learn from it. Do we know? Do you really know? Do you realize that what you listen to and what you watch, what you read, what you experience, all of those things are informing you and they are transforming you. They have an effect on you. Can we Can we spot truth from error? Or do we just receive it as truth? Do we receive it because we want to? Or do we receive it because it's true? Can we appropriately and faithfully take our lives and the things that we do and and subject them to the Word of God? Are we able to do that? Or do we run to what seems right, what sounds good, and what makes us look better? Students, the the message this morning is that the gospel sets you free. You don't have to worry about who you are. You don't have to worry about what you've done because in the eyes of God, you are righteous in Christ. The one you really need to impress is infinitely impressed with you. If you're a Christian, if you've received his saving grace, then you've been set free. So don't go back and put the chains back on yourself. Run instead. Run in freedom. Free from the law. Free from the principles of the world. Free from our sin. Do not fail to imitate Paul. Let's follow him together in freedom. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, Through your great love, you have made a way for sinners like us to be adopted into the family of God. The Father has chosen us, given us his name, and that he sent the Holy Spirit to indwell us, to give us new hearts, to change our minds, to open our eyes, 
So Lord, I pray that by your grace and your power through your word, by your spirit, you would remind all of us who we are in Jesus. That we're the children of God. That we're a part of your family. And because we know who we are, God, help us. Help us to put away, to not follow these imposters, to to not give our allegiance and our faith and our hope to those things that will never satisfy, those things that are weak and worthless. And Lord, help us to be faithful imitators, whether it's Paul here in Galatians 4 or other mature believers in our own lives. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's an older friend. Maybe it's an equipping group leader. Maybe it's a table leader. God, I I don't know, but I, I know that you've placed people in our lives that we might learn from, that we might be discipled by, that we might grow in grace with. So Lord, I pray that you would teach us how to live as free people. That, that that will lead to the kind of joy and the kind of satisfaction and the kind of pleasures that the things of this world promise but can never deliver. Lord, we trust you. Help us to continue to trust you. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.